If you were looking for an elected socialist mayor today, you probably wouldn't start with the state of Mississippi. But Jackson, Mississippi, is where the Lumumba family has worked to establish a radical vision of an American socialist future. I recently spoke to Shakwe Antar Lumumba, a self-described radical socialist who's been Jackson's mayor since 2017. He's followed in his father's footsteps. From 2013 until he died in office, his father, Chakwe Lumumba, was Jackson's mayor and worked to bring socialist policies to the heart of the Deep South. Well, first and foremost, happy to join you in this conversation, and, and this is a discussion which is near and dear to me. In order to give a proper framework of that history, it, it stretches further back than, you know, either my father's election to uh, the office of mayor in 2013. You know, I come from a rich tradition and legacy of two parents that were activists and, and moved us to Mississippi for the purpose of community building and work. My father was in Jackson, Mississippi in the early 70s doing work to help sustain and create self-determined communities. Out of that, he was at a, a crossroads or, or a point in his life where he was trying to determine whether he could pursue a legal career and still maintain that that vision and that goal, and he found his way to that. Mm. Later, gained a family after moving back to Detroit and uh, then had a case that lasted for two years in New York uh, and decided that they wanted to move to the South. And it was my father who who shared that we still had unfinished business in Mississippi, mm. and that's why we moved here, not because we have family members in Mississippi, but because uh, we wanted to be a part of some work that we felt was important. My parents felt that giving their children a sense of community was as important part of nurturing us as giving us food, water, and shelter. Mm -hmm. And so whether the work, you know, we've been blessed to be a part of is categorized as socialist work, revolutionary work. It's work that recognizes that conditions as they exist are not sufficient for our people and we have to dare to do something different. Now, Jackson in American history is a place that obviously has a, a number of different flashpoints, perhaps none more uh, prominent and poignant than the assassination of Medgar Evers there in 1963. And so I'm curious if your father's sense of unfinished work is continuing a kind of militancy and anti-racism and economic justice of the kind that Medgar Evers helped to initiate, or even thinking more broadly about the, the Black radical South and building Jackson as a kind of launchpad for a broad regional realignment around politics of self-determination? So we're a part of um, a mm. continuum of struggle mm. that has had different iterations over time. Mm -hmm. Early on, my father and many of his comrades were somewhat antagonistic towards the idea of electoral politics, as mm -hmm. many people still find themselves today. Um, right. You find people who are disheartened. There's apathy. You find people who, you know, have just lost total faith in the electoral structure. And so, you know, we pursued a number of community efforts and grassroots efforts that had sustained while limited success in, in what it was accomplishing at that moment. Uh, and so, you know, I think that where my father and many of his comrades graduated to in their thinking was, you know, the idea of, of how we could pursue other means of meeting people where they are mm -hmm. and, and even recognizing the limitations in electoral politics that it is a mere means to an end and not the end of its, it, itself. And so people have to be organized on multiple fronts in order to create a better condition. When we see a society where there's a growing inequity, there are many contributions to that discussion of, of how we've come to this point. And I was a part of a conversation with uh, a number of mayors 
some time ago about this. And, and so there were meaningful contributions of, you know, innovation versus workforce, um, mm -hmm. you know, minimum wage and, you know, education and all these things were important. But I had a problem with the premise of the discussion and seeing that we have gone wrong. I think that, that the system is operating in the way that it was always intended to. And if anything, it's probably overperforming. We're merely finding out <laughs> that the system as designed doesn't work for us, right? Right. You've been on record as saying that you'd like to see Jackson become the, quote, most radical city on the planet. And I'm curious as to what you mm -hmm. imagine that might look like in, say, you know, five years or 15 years, if this vision, you know, moves, as, as, as you describe, from the ground up and from pothole to pothole to community to community. Well, I think it's a city that that makes a drastic shift from from what has traditionally taken place, uh, waiting on someone to act on our behalf, being at the bottom of receiving so many resources to a city that demands control of their governance, demands control of how we develop and, and you know, understanding that the future isn't coming, the future is here, it's just not evenly distributed, uh, and demanding that that they get their fair share. And that, you know, we we look at unity and look at equity in the process of what we build, understanding that development is more than just, you know, great edifices and, and you know, structures that we build, but being intentional about the souls that reside in a space and how we take care of them. You know, that that idea of being the most radical city on the planet surfaced out of what was initially a critique. It was a critique of myself and, and prior to taking office, it was a critique of my father you know, suggesting that possibly we were too radical to bring people together. And so, you know, I tell people, I looked up the word radical, and I find that a radical is a person who seeks change. And if we look into communities that are in need of change, then the reality is that we should be as radical as the circumstances dictate we should be. And when we look across history at the people that we revere most, you mentioned Megger Evers. He was a radical. Fannie Lou Hamer, uh, who organized poor farmers in the Mississippi Delta, was a radical. Ida B. Wells, who dared to disseminate a message that was dangerous but necessary, uh, was a radical. Jesus Christ was a radical. And so I see it as a badge of honor. I don't even know if I'm deserving of it, right? Uh, but but we should see it as, you know, an opportunity to be a model more than just accomplish our ends and, and correct our problems as a city, but take a space that has been known for so much negativity historically and turn it into a space that that serves as a model for the rest of the world to to build off. Now, you've just outlined a pretty compelling you know, genealogy of folks from, from Jesus Christ through Ida B. Wells to Fannie Lou Hamer and up who have been espousing through one form or another a kind of you know, radical vision. And so I'm curious in terms of the bigger picture, what you make of, of the current moment, specifically you know, this tension that seems to be animating national debates now around socialism, be it the Green New Deal, be it around prison abolition, you know, ending kind of surplus, you know, populations and the like, um, you know, of workers, right? I mean, what is it that you imagine to be the role of your administration and your city in shaping and bumping up against this national conversation? And, and do you play, pay any credence at all to the notion that somehow it's possible to advance as a kind of political and rhetorical strategy, the notion that, say, socialism is actually quite American. <laughs> well, and that comes up a lot when I talk about cooperative enterprise. Mm -hmm. uh, in the context of that specifically, I would say that this isn't something that's coming, it's something that's here. If people in our nation knew how many businesses were ultimately cooperatives, 
then they would understand that it's a necessary addition to how this economy develops. Lando Lakes Butter is a cooperative. Mm-hmm. Florida Orange Growers is a cooperative. You're a part of a credit union. You're a part of nothing more than than a cooperative. Even though I'm I'm originally from Detroit, and it pains me to say this, one of the largest cooperatives we know today is the Green Bay Packers, right? Uh, that is owned by <laughs> You're the You're a community. Lions fan, I take it. Yeah, yeah I, I am. I am. Let you know I can endure struggle, okay? Uh, but... You know, those are ideas of how communities see something that they find value in it and support it, and it works right. for the benefit of, of those communities. And so we can we can broaden that. Now, in terms of this notion of, of the scary word socialism, what mm-hmm. I would say is that we have to find an, an opportunity to exploit operational unity because people have been conditioned or, or told to fear myself and, and other people who are speaking this way. You know, I find here in Jackson that, that there are people that I now engage in conversations that, that learn that, you know, I'm not such a scary guy. I'm actually pretty nice, right? Right. Uh, I'm passionate <laughs> uh, and right. I'm concerned about people and, and I'm not trying to work towards the detriment of anyone. And so this notion or this discussion that tries to push back, that it's trying to take away value or take away something from someone else, is, is something that we have to shift that dynamic and, and exploit operational unity, which focuses more on our common ends and objectives than our differences. And, and in doing so, you find a space or an opportunity to have a conversation that, that may not have previously been envisioned. And when we shift the narrative and really explain to people how they have not been benefited from the system as it exists, then you find kind of that aha moment where people see that that this is really true. You know, if we go back to the the roots of slavery in Mississippi, mm-hmm. we know who the obvious victims of slavery are. Right. But we very rarely have a conversation in Mississippi about poor white families and the majority of families who did not own slaves and how right. they were exploited. It was a labor system that provided no opportunity for you. So, Mayor Lumumba, given your, your father's electoral success and, and now your own, does it tell us anything about the viability of socialism in electoral poli- politics specifically? Yeah, well, you know, I would share with you uh, the very thing that my father stated after his election is that the election or his election or the election of a progressive ideal says, honestly, less about the candidate, less about us and more about uh, the people. The selection of our leadership demonstrates the readiness of the people. And I think if we can find people ready for change in Mississippi, people who have been oppressed in so many ways, honestly, oppression has the potential to be the greatest organizer of all time, then it suggests where we can build to in conversations that we are prepared to take on now throughout the nation and throughout the world. So just based on where you sit from your vantage point, I mean, are the conditions across the country such that could reflect the possibility of them pulling the lever in the socialist direction? I believe so. Uh, I think that that people are looking for big vision. Mm. People are looking for something different. And that's why you see so many new ideas being thrown out. You know, we state that that we have a booming economy. Uh, The reality is that, yeah, even if the pie is bigger, your slice in it hasn't changed, right? Uh, Your (laughs) your slice of that pie has gotten no bigger and, and, and you're still living in the same conditions you were before they told you that the economy was better. Mm. And so we want people to start asking questions. How does that translate into my life? You know, Mm -hmm. how do I see greater opportunities for my children? How do I secure safe and and clean water? How do I ensure that the infrastructure around my community is is built and supportive? And if you don't see those changes, right, then, then, you know, just looking at GDP as a measure of success is insufficient. 
And so right. how do we look at socially sustainable goals and as, as a new index for success in communities and, and, and whether we are thriving or failing to make the mark? Nathan, our topic today is the history of socialism, and I know that we focus on U.S. history, but I think on this topic, it's almost impossible to talk about American socialism without looking over at the great socialist, indeed communist, example, the Soviet Union. Mm. From the end of World War I up until arguably the 80s or the 90s, not clear, when it ends, we have a nation that's often defined as a mortal enemy that is seen as a minimum socialist and calls itself communist. So my question for you is, how does American socialism differ from that Soviet model, which is sitting over there and and kind of a beacon to the world as to what communism is? It's absolutely true that the, the specter of you know, communism with state power behind it, right, with the Soviet Union, raised deep concerns for those who are thinking about American national security or you know, foreign relations, diplomatic circles. And the ideology of the 20th century has in some ways become so tilted by the Cold War frame that we have a very hard time now even appreciating or parsing the differences between, say, socialism or communism in the abstract or even as they are applied in American society. I mean, it, it may surprise some listeners to know that different socialist practices, including forming mutual aid societies or creating cooperatives, publicly owned lands, these kinds of things that are not driven by a profit motive, you know, which is basically what separates socialism from capitalism. You take out the profit motive. Those kinds of things are really predating the the country itself. I mean, you can go back to Charleston, you know, South Carolina in the 1730s and find, you know, mutual aid organizations, for example, that are basically keeping those colonies humming. And so, you know, what we understand communism to be, which is workers owning the means of production, that doesn't really have anything beyond a few small outfits or adherents who are, you know, trying to radicalize workers, but it never reaches the same kind of momentum as general practices of cooperative economics and such are existing in the United States. Yeah, that's a great point. So, Brian, just thinking about this in the present day and and say millennials who are really, you know, in some cases, having no recollection of the Berlin Wall even coming down and certainly not invested at all in mid-20th century squabbles over socialism. But they're still, in many cases, feeling drawn to politicians who are advocating for different forms of socialist programming, whether it's different kinds of employment or health care or their concerns about ever owning a home, right? Is there any way to account for the arrival or the popularity or the, the cresting support for socialistic ideas that are rooted in contemporary concerns. I think you just named all of them, Nathan. I mean, (laughs) the fact that there is no external, literal national security threat from Mm. nations that embrace communism is a huge factor. As you said, they don't remember the fall of the Berlin Wall. They certainly don't remember the high point of the Cold War. And domestically, 
the fact that the social security system is skewed against them because of their age. I mean, let's face it, one of the biggest redistributions of income in the 20th century was between young people and old people. Mm. I'm one of those old people. You're one of those young people. And you're (laughs) stuck with the bill. That's right. right. <laughs> we, we can settle up after the show, though, Brian. I'll, I'll, I'll take a check. <laughs> so these people are thinking about the kinds of mechanisms that are simply assumed in many of the societies that they look to. Universal mm-hmm. health care, some kind of social provision that is equitable, not just for older people, but for younger people as well. And they're looking towards that without the ultimate, you know, veto power of, oh no, that's like the Soviet Union. That's like the People's Republic of China. So there's nothing to stop them logically from saying, hey, why not? Right, right. So I got to tell you, Brian, I mean, one of the things that I think is very clear in just how politicized the terms are, and, and really, you know, to my mind, just how empty these terms like socialism and capitalism are as vessels, right? They're, they're empty vessels into which people pour their political and economic interests is the fact that for many African-Americans, you know, through the high point of prosperity in the 20th century and the booming consumer economy, they lived in what was, in effect, a socialist economy. Now, <laughs> now, bear, with, now bear with me on this. So if, if you think about Jim Crow segregation as a regulation on the free market, And you look at what socialism's kind of textbook definition is, which is from each according to their skill to each according to their need. Many people who are in political power said, well, we don't think that African-Americans are very smart. We don't think that they're very industrious. We don't think that they need, for example, nine months of school. We don't think that they need the ability to organize in labor unions. So the exceptions that are written into the Wagner Act, the segregation under the Housing Act, the the disparate school year funding that African-Americans are experiencing, all of this is about an economy that is overtly regulated to their detriment. And frankly, if you look at what the arguments were through the 20th century, they were in many cases what we would call a deregulatory argument, right? Saying, look, we just want the ability to participate in capitalism like everybody else. And you got, you know, Southern senators with all of their Americanism in their red-blooded patriotism saying, no, we're going to regulate this economy in such a way where you won't be able to participate in a free market system. So it's, it's wonderful to point out the irony of the fact that in many instances, the very people who are, you know, really just railing against the government because it's, you know, engaging in creeping socialism in the arenas of, you know, housing, education, employment, and so forth, are also highly regulating, and again, <laughs> frankly, over-regulating African-Americans in the spirit of racial segregation. Well, Nathan, I didn't think it was possible, but you now have convinced me why we should look for a socialist mayor in Mississippi. <laughs> yeah, because again, it's, it's, not, it's not socialism in the abstract, but it's the kind, right? It's, and if you have a, a kind of socialism in Jackson, you know, like Mayor Lumumba is advocating for, it has baked into it, at least, an anti-racist commitment. And I think, you know, that has to be at least part of what you know, any economic system has, you know, in this country anyway. 